where's the EU's um, responsibility to its own citizens? If we say, okay, well, everyone can, you know, like just everyone can come in. How is that sustainable? How, leaving aside the, the tensions that, that it can it can make between societies, leaving aside the potential for security threats that that may come from a small number of individuals, whether that's knife crime, whether that's gang activity, whether that even terrorism, leaving aside all of that, where does the money come from? <laughs> How are you guys doing? Back, thanks. Yeah, no, always same, same old, same old. How First block of night shifts is always fun. How about you, Chris? You on days this week? A bit easier? Finish, finish today in about two hours' time, so very ah, happy. Lovely stuff. We'll see about that. Welcome to The Insight. If you like our content, then please like, comment, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. So this week, we're talking about the EU and the migrant crisis. And the migrant crisis isn't necessarily a new phenomenon in that it's been going on for quite some time now. However, recent conflicts in countries like Syria, Iraq and Libya have really served to increase the, intent, the, increase the number of migrants coming into the EU. And as in correspondence with this, we've also seen an increase in coverage in, in European countries' media and also in the political discourse. The, the reasons for these migrants coming to the EU are a mixture of push and pull factors, with the push factors being factors such as uh, insecurity in their ho- home countries as well as poor economic situations, and pull factors being uh, aspects such as uh, uh, benefits that get paid, paid out in European countries as well as a better standard of life. So in order to address this topic, because I think we can all agree it is quite a, a large topic and it's, at times it can be quite controversial, I think in order to break this topic down into more bite-sized parts, we're going we're gonna to focus on three different categories. And first is going to be national level categories, second is going to be international level uh, uh, tensions and, and uh, disputes, and finally we're going to talk as a group about, um, about what the EU can do to try and reduce the impact of the, of the crisis that we're seeing now and what the EU can do, and also whether the EU is actually inherently capable of responding to such an issue so i'm going to get the ball rolling today and uh, we're going to start with the national level uh, tensions and issues and i think uh something you guys can talk about as well so i'll let you guys chime in as and when points come up but so uh, a few points i've i've seen myself is uh when these large numbers of migrants at national level when they come over to various host countries we've seen a lot of the time, uh, migration as well of tensions that existed between communities in, in the countries that they came from. So, for example, between ethnic groups or religious groups. And at times, these uh, these tensions and these uh, these tensions between communities have been tra- have travelled to countries such as Sweden, which hosts a large number of migrants. And this in itself poses a, a threat to, to police, and uh, it's a threat that police have also really struggled to deal with. I don't know about you guys, but I, I suspect that uh, police are obviously used to. Uh, to certain themes, but having to deal with the tensions between communities from another country just adds another layer of complication to policing these issues. So I don't know if you're in your own respective countries, if you've seen a similar theme in places such as the Greek islands or in Italy. So yeah, actually looking, say, at like Lesbos, um, sort of large migrant camps, which are horrifically overcrowded, and you have got sort of these different ethnic groupings put together, and quite often you have outbreaks of violence, stabbings, murders, um, arson attacks and the camps are overcrowded the police don't have the resources to manage it and because of this violence sort of the image of migrants is made even worse 
And that means you then have hostility from actually the local population. So somewhere like Lesbos, for example, you then have Greeks living on the island protesting and rioting with the police because they sit there and they go, we don't want any more migrants here. And they then grow to resent sort of the Athenian authorities and think they've been sort of left abandoned. So basically every element of society is being critically impacted here. Hmm. And those interregional within a within the state, those interregional uh, disputes are quite important as certain parts of the country are just less impacted by uh, issues such as migration than others. I think it's a common case in Italy in uh, uh, Lampedusa, is it? Um, yeah, which is uh, one of the main sort of reception aisles. It's it's actually closer to Tunisia than it is to uh, mm. to Sicily. Um, you're right that these immigrants coming from all over the place, whether it's sub-Saharan Africa. Um, Middle East, further afield, they're all sort of f- being filtered through certain pipelines. So it's wrong. You're right in that it's wrong to look at them as just a block of immigrants. Um, and you're right; they do bring a lot of tensions with 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 them. Um, some of it can be racism. Um, it can be religious splits. Um, there's there's anecdotal. There's data. Um, there are incidents where, for example, Christians were thrown overboard. Um, in the Mediterranean, on their way to a place like Lampedusa, um, by the by the Muslim um, crew, because a storm was coming, the Christians were praying, so they found out who the Christians were and threw them overboard. Um, so yeah, these these things, while we might look at them as you know blocks of just just immigrants um, or migrants, um, they it's really a big melting pot of people that don't necessarily know each other and don't necessarily get on anyway. Um, that's that's coming in as a group. Yes, and so not only have you got the pre-existing tensions, I think as as a whole, European countries have really struggled to integrate integrate migrants as they've arrived in their host countries. So this comes with a series of issues, not only economic, as it it's it's incredibly difficult and intense uh, process to try and integrate large numbers of migrants, but also crime. So that again, there's anecdotal evidence, evidence often, but there's statistical as well in that uh, a lot of a lot of migrants they do attempt to integrate into society. However, it's often a very long, drawn out process, also incredibly difficult. And things such as gangs actively recruit from migrants, particularly in the uh, migrant camps, which you've spoken about. These tend to be hives for um, things such as radicalization, and also just jo- uh, joining criminal groups that have nothing to do with radicalization. So again. Uh, Although whilst integration is often spoken about as being an incredibly important part, it does seem to be very under, often underfunded, but also under, I think, underappreciated into how important it actually is in order to try and uh, try and reduce some of the security-related issues that are associated with migration into the EU. And this has been something the EU, I think, has, has struggled with across the board. Almost pretty much every state that's taken in large numbers of migrants has really struggled on how how they should approach its integration side of things. Yeah, well, I think there's there's a number of thing number of factors working against integration. Um, for starters, immigrants come from societies with different values. They, you know, I'm sure lots want, do want to integrate, but there are certain things that we maybe take for granted in in the West that, due to their their culture, they're opposed to. You also have uh, the the sort of multicultural approach um in in the west where that you know some people actually say you know don't assimilate you know that would be cultural genocide um we're multicultural we should accept all of these different viewpoints um without really caring or giving much thought to to the problems that will happen you know that can lead to um and also like you say they 
immigrants, they too tend to get concentrated in certain areas. You know, like immigrants aren't moving to sort of rural France. They're concentrating in the big cities like Paris, where you end up with ghettos. They're not living on the North Yorkshire Moors or anything, mm. or the Highlands or, you know, the, the hills in Wales. They're concentrating in London, Birmingham, Manchester. You know, these are the places where you you see problems with with immigrant based gra- gangs and, and knife crime um so yeah integration is a big big thing that's that's basically not happening but i think there's also another interesting point so i only mentioning it because recently there was an interesting case in austria where a synagogue in the city of graz over sort of the course of a week kept on suffering from a series of incidents uh, the first was pro-Palestinian graffiti being sort of sprayed on the side of one of the walls. Mm-hmm. Then, a few days later, a lump of concrete was thrown through a window. And then finally, uh, the leader of the local Jewish community was assaulted outside of the synagogue. And then a few days later, they finally arrested the suspect, who they found was a Syrian refugee who had arrived in Austria in 2013, and who had seemingly sort of assimilated, sort of started integrating into life in Austria. And you then realise that, obviously... Coming from conflict-ridden countries, you will have deeply held political views that you won't be able to let go of. So in this case, it was, I think, it was sort of to do with Israel-Palestine, specifically the Israel-UAE deal, which had caused massive mm. controversy across the Arab world. And clearly that was sort of a trigger for someone who had previously seemed to live a fairly peaceful life to commit acts that in the West are deemed unacceptable. Yeah. I think you both hinted uh, quite a good point, a quite large, broad point as well, actually, and that's uh, how how these incidents are perceived, and whether or not they're a statistical anomaly, anom- uh, anomaly, anomaly or not, is um, is very much depends on who you ask a lot of the time. But I found, regardless, these attacks and these incidents are perceived by uh, they're easy they're easy writing for the media as well. And as as Europe's taken in more and more refugees, we've seen. I would say a bit more of a polarization between liberal and conservative parties in various countries. As one, as I, I personally feel like uh, parties have started to really start to disagree, disagree quite strongly on issues such as migration. And these incidents, as they appear in media, they gather more more attention. And we're really starting to see discourse uh, around this, which is very, a lot of political parties have really shaped their identity on. Not all, a lot of parties they see migration as just part of a part of a broader issue but some parties and some politicians as well as well as other uh, non-government groups have very much uh, shaped themselves around this issue so with that in mind i think it's, it's safe to say that this has become a very heavily politicized issue and also quite a sensitive issue in politics as well it's, it's it can at times be quite difficult to to talk about as media on this on this issue is often is often coming from one side of the coin or the other it is it is hard to find uh, consistently reliable data on these on these on these incidents so absolutely. So like thinking about the political situation and just bring it back to the UK and looking at so the county of Kent, which is just due to its geographical proximity to France, where the vast majority of migrant landings occur. Mm. And looking at, first of all, the 2015 election, 20.3% of the population of Kent who did vote, voted for UKIP. Uh, and that was more than the Labour Party. And the party that came first was the Conservatives. Uh, and then in the Brexit referendum, I think it was just under 60% of the county voted for Brexit. So it brings up this idea of sort of proximity to an issue, making it poor prevalent in the minds of people who live there. And in this case, because of the migrant landings, were people in the county going or supporting parties that actively campaigned on a stronger anti-immigration stance? 
Initially, I'm not entirely convinced because with Brexit, the area that actually voted most in favour of Brexit was Boston, which is in the East Midlands, while the neighbouring county to Kent, which is Sussex, was literally a 50-50 split. So I'm not entirely convinced about this proximity, but there's definitely evidence of parties seeing where people feel there is an issue and trying to exploit it for mm. political gain. Unfortunately, but that's not the mainstream parties. That's um, You say that the debate is um, quite sensitive. I think it's a debate that it's so sensitive we don't have it. It can't be... Ha- I'm yet to see uh, an informed, reasoned debate about immigration. Now, when we're talking about immigration from outside of Europe, whether we're talking asylum seekers, um, we're talking economic migrants, um, as you say, people voted UKIP. Um, and that's... What seems to happen is the consensus is so pro-migration that if you oppose it in any way, if you have concerns, it's not, you know, you're shouted down generally as a racist. I mean, it's the gammon meme, you know, it's 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 everyone who votes UKIP or Brexit Party or mm. whatever, they're gammons, the little Englanders, you know. So there's there's a big there's a big sort of groundswell of concern over over immigration. And no one's addressing that. And that's the main parties aren't interested. They don't want to have that debate. Um, occasionally, the Conservatives might sort of talk a little bit tough to try and get, you know, in the past, because they were running scared from UKIP. Um, I think that's past now. UKIP's a spent force. But you you find that no one's willing to have that debate. And anyone who wants to talk about it is generally shouted down as a racist and pushed towards the fringes. And I think that's where the danger lies in the future. The more, certainly Britain, I can't speak for the rest of Europe, but has been consistently, there's been concerns for, for decades about immigration and no party's ever sought to address it from the mainstream perspective. Um, and I think the more you ignore everyone, the sh- louder they'll shout, the, to the more to the extremes they'll go. Um, and these these days when we have increased but let's face it racial tensions with black lives matter being imported from the states um huge economic problems with with covid19 and lockdown and, and people losing jobs all this stuff is going to going to get in go into the mixing part and i can see i can well see quite a high level of social unrest the sort that we're not used to occurring in the in the certainly medium to long term if this sort of thing isn't addressed yeah, I think that conversation itself highlights the the, the dif- difference in opinions just at, at, in the UK alone, let alone in other European countries. I think it was it's useful that you guys talked about uh, talked about the EU there as well and, and Brexit mm. as part of uh, the British discourse. And I think that brings us on to the second theme quite nicely, which is international tensions. Mm-hmm. So one thing I've noticed with the EU and with Europe as a continent as well, so including countries such as the UK, uh, is the general lack of consensus within within the EU. And this is mostly due to countries that are more directly affected and impacted by uh, this crisis. They found themselves uh, wanting more uh, tougher action from the EU regarding the regarding migrants and the incoming incoming migrants, whereas countries that perhaps are much less impacted by by the arrival of migrants have generally taken a much more laissez-faire approach to it. They're much uh, they're much less keen to get involved and because mm-hmm. they, in their opinion they have their own they have their own issues. And this is one of the this is being pointed out by uh, by other politi- political leaders that the EU is really struggling to put forwards a consistent narrative here. 
And I think that's really holding it back, actually, in how the EU as an international body, even though it is just one body, it is made up of multiple states. I think it's really uh, hamstrung the EU and how it's dealt with this. But we'll come on to that a bit later as we talk about how the EU uh, can deal with this crisis. But I just want to get this section um, started, I guess, with a case study that I found. And one that's been particularly prevalent in the in relation and in discourse surrounding the whole conversation of um, the whole issue, sorry, the whole issue of of migrants and coming into the EU, and that's the way that Turkey has, in some ways, uh, people often accuse Turkey of weaponizing refugees. And what they're saying means is they use they use refugees as leverage against the EU, and they do this by uh, and they're accused of doing this by allowing large numbers of migrants to try and make the crossing to Greece at times of political tension between Turkey and the EU. So perhaps uh, they may do this to try and get concessions from the EU in negotiations. So, for example, if they would like to get a concession from the EU, they'll simply release uh, release more migrants and allow more migrants to try and make crossings without hindering them as they cross into Greece. And the result is this puts the EU on the back foot, puts a lot of pressure on EU states, particularly Greece, who take the majority of the migrants. And it also induces uh, induces political discussion and and general disagreement within the EU. And eventually, and normally, the EU does decide to come to concessions with Turkey as a result, because this is simply pressure that can't be sustained. And Turkey's continued to do this. And the majority of these migrants that coming through Turkey are coming from countries such as Syria and Iraq. And at times, they're actually treated uh, quite poorly in in Syria. There's multiple cases of of abuse towards refugees in in Turkey. So multiple cases of abuse towards refugees in Turkey. And the whole point is Turkey is not somewhere where they want to be staying. So they're coming from war-torn countries, and they're essentially often held in Turkey for quite a long time until, as we discussed earlier, there's a dispute between Turkey and the EU. And they'll try and uh, and they'll try and make a crossing unhindered by Turkish border security. And I think this issue in itself has really highlighted, in some ways, I guess you could say that the EU has contracted its border security to Turkey, and now the EU is really struggling as a result. I don't know if there's any other cases of this where you guys have come from, perhaps uh, where you guys study, I should say, where you've perhaps been been looking at uh, migrants coming from North Africa across the Mediterranean rather than through Greece itself. I think with the Mediterranean, you're looking at a situation where Libya is war-torn and it's struggling to sort of form its own government, so there's no real control there. And as for Tunisia, um, it doesn't appear like the Tunisian authorities are particularly informed about the situation or managing it. Um, because, uh, yeah, it is important to note the migrant crisis sort of comes in two forms. You've got sort of the Balkans route, which is you're coming from Turkey either crossing the land border with Greece or taking small boats to the islands mm. and then moving up through the Balkan states into sort of mm. Central Eastern Europe going across. And then, yes, this Mediterranean crossing. And I feel like it's the Mediterranean crossing which is, in a way, less political and is genuinely where there is sort of a crisis of people either fleeing from war or just desperate mm. to try and get out. And that, that seems to be the less political. I don't think there is geopolitical intrigue mm. there. Well... Yeah, I, I get what you mean. It's less political because we can actually deal with Turkey um, and, and, like you say, buy them off um, or, or, you know, get them to, which has been what we've been doing. Um, I mean, Turkey have, have logistically done very well with the number of, of, uh, of the influx that they've had to deal with. Um, and you're right, it is, it is sort of seen as less political. Um, but that's only because Libya is such a basket case that there's no one to deal with there. Um You've got to remember a, a lot of a lot of this immigration started, you know, after the Arab Spring and, and the collapse of Libya. Um, 
prior to that, the Italians were basically paying off Gaddafi to, you know, um, not let so many across and, and to even return those that did make it. Um, but as you say, with, with um, in terms of relations, it's also worth remembering that there is a route up through Morocco as well. Mm. Um, a, a lot of people sort of cross the cross at Gibraltar and, and come into Europe via Spain. And Morocco is a country that the EU's got very good very good um relations with you know it's not it's not the give and take sort of like uh, like it is with turkey um but there's still that route you know it's it, local governments can however willing they are they can still only do so much yeah we spoke at the start about push factors such as conflict mm. in countries and as long as those push factors exist there'll always be a large number of migrants and mm. countries like libya syria Iraq, which I believe all three of those are actually in the top five for the this year, number of in countries that produce the most migrants traveling to the EU. These countries are some of the most war-torn countries on earth. So uh, as long as those push factors exist in these host countries, no matter how good your relationship is with the peripheral states around the EU, there's always going to be large numbers of migrants and there's always going to be this political issue. So I think it's, I can't see this issue changing anytime soon as long as these conflicts continue to persist. I can see it getting worse. Mm. I see it getting a lot worse. You, you imagine this is hypothetical um i mean we've seen how how bad it's got with the collapse of libya can you imagine what it'd be like if algeria fell apart mm. um which it keeps it's not really a country people pay much attention to but it, it's one of the largest countries on earth it's got massive coastline massive hinterland of desert it's basically a petro state you know it's got social funding to keep the regime going that's that's fueled by you know, oil sales. Oil is not doing well. It hasn't been doing well for years now. Um, imagine, like I say, hypothetical. Imagine if oil keeps going, keeps going down. Algeria can no longer afford its social spending and its its military spending and the sort of thing that keep help keep the country going, and it collapses in the, in a similar fashion to Libya. Um, that would make the the twenty fifteen migrant crisis when it, which is when it really peaked um mm. that'll look pretty in, almost insignificant compared to what could happen yeah it's not hard to see how one how uh yeah. it's already very much a quite difficult situation it's not hard to see how just a small change to what we've already got for the worse would take what is a very bad situation to a substantially worse one very quickly so that brings us on to our final section which is how capable is the eu of dealing with this and also as as an institution is the eu inherently hamstrung in the way it deals with this and we spoke about it really briefly earlier as it is a network of states it's not just one institution but this is a really good opportunity to uh, expand on it and i thought it'd be good to get you guys opinions on this actually so starting with you alex what do you think about the eu and its ability to deal with the refugee crisis um they're useless and they don't have any chance <laughs> strong statements yeah um I think it's it's ably demonstrated by, like the example you said with Turkey earlier, with the as you say, sort of weaponizing um, migrants. I think it's re- incidents like that and and the migrant crisis as a whole has really shown up the fault lines within the EU between like the comparatively poorer southern um, European reception mm. countries and the the richer northern ones. Um, the the east former eastern bloc you know your your polands and your czech republics who are who take a far harder line as opposed to the more sort of multiculty lefty um western countries um and it also shows how for example uh give, take the 2015 example where where angela merkel just basically threw open the gates and and let about a million um 
migrants in, you know, in that year. Um, and, and then it was up to everyone else to sort of take their quota and, mm. and um, whether they liked it or not. Um, I, so, yeah, I don't I think like a lot of EU things, there's there's so many different takes from different states and, and vested interests that they can't come up with a, with a coherent policy, um, let alone enforce one. See, I was going to say, I think it's the EU does have actually the physical resources to commit to a solid anti sort of not necessarily anti migrant program, but a way of handling the migrant crisis. From is, I don't think there's necessarily the will within the constituent nations, as you said, countries like Czech Republic. It's landlocked, so actually it won't have any sort of ships to help uh, mm. in the Mediterranean, and it's slightly off the Balkans route. So it won't have sort of a thoroughfare of migrants. And thing about sort of obviously in the UK is always migrants coming from Calais, landing sort of in Dover. If you're coming from Turkey, that means you've passed through six countries and you sit and go, well, how would you stop that? And fundamentally, freedom of movement in the EU is probably yeah. the most enshrined part of it. Um, I'd say it's probably now seen as sort of a greater thing than the trading bloc that it was initially created as. So I don't think the EU sort of morally actually has the ability to deal with this. Because I think it would fundamentally, if they sit and go, you can have freedom of movement unless you live from another country, it seems to erode that whole idea of sort of ever closer union and bringing in a common good. There'd have to be border checks and you'd have to check everyone. Otherwise, what's the point? And and freedom of movement would be out the window. But what could they actually do to if they thought stem the flow i don't think there is anything i mean there's been you know a, po- a minor positive thing was the um denial of of the use of ports to some ngo vessels um this in recent months um that were were basically making the human traffickers jobs easy for them and picking people up you know towing boats in say towing them in towing them half you know across more than half the mediterranean um but as long as that keeps keeps happening, there's nothing that can be done. Once once migrants get to, well, with the NGOs and, and some of the, the Coast Guard activities, once they get out of Libyan waters, they're basically in, in Europe and no one's ever going to send them back. But See, I think fundamentally, the whole point is a lot of these migrants have come from, as we've discussed earlier, war-torn countries. And the point of the EU has it's always been sort of a message to the rest of the world. After World War II, the continent was almost torn apart. And now it's sort of a force for peace, a force for common good. To then take a militant stance would almost completely erode, I think, international faith in the EU. It would make it look like it's completely sort of lying. I think it would be far better if it sort of acts to attempt to stabilise the countries that migrants are coming from. I think that is potentially the only but, source. But again, what, how would the EU do that? They don't have a military. They can't decide on how a military would work. There's checkbook diplomacy coming from Germany, but um, other countries aren't willing to write write big checks. And even if they did, what what good would that necessarily do? I mean, increasing international aid is not going to not going to stem the tide of, of illegal immigration. I think this is um, something you brought up earlier. Actually, at the very start of this section, you said that the EU uh, hasn't really got the ability to interfere or to have any influence in countries essentially outside of the EU. And what this has done is it's, it's forced the EU to very much respond to this crisis and not really have the initiative. So the EU is very much responding to the migrants as they respond on the borders. 
And one point I'd like to throw in here as well, actually, and you did just say the EU has no military, which I think is true. I mean, which means, which obviously is true, sorry, which I think means that it struggles to have uh, an impact at times in war zones across the world. So, for example, in Syria, the EU has had a very a very back foot uh, approach to this conflict and it's had very little uh, influence in it. And whilst EU members are actively involved, they're not involved through the EU itself. They're involved through other institutions. And what this means is, yes, the EU can try and uh, try and adjust its own pull factors. So, for example, it can try and introduce new laws which make it harder for migrants to gain access to certain funds, which has been quite controversial in a lot of states. But at the end of the day, they can't impact the push factors, the the conflicts, the economic uh, hardships taking place in a lot of the countries where these migrants are coming from. And, and because of this, the EU is always going to be dealing with the migrant crisis very much on the back foot. It's always going to be responding to the issue rather than trying to stabilise these countries where these migrants are coming from. And I think that essentially, whilst I don't think the EU is inherently unable to deal with this crisis, I think they'll always be hamstrung in the way they deal with it because they can't deal with those push factors directly. They've got very little influence in countries such as Syria and Iraq. It's very, they're very limited here, and as but, a result, they're going to struggle. But they do have influence on the pull factors, and they don't do anything about them. But it, it would seem completely sort of counter to the purpose of the EU, which is always meant to be sort of this beacon of hope, how the rest of the world could bundle itself on it, to then yeah. completely create, like... <laughs> policies to make the eu seem unattractive mm. it would seem like a completely and it would the message it would well, send if to you're not an eu citizen if you just show up here even if you don't if you're just an economic migrant you're not fleeing um a, a conflict or anything and it's worth noting that that in sort of 2015-16 frontex the the european border agency admitted that about 60 percent of people had no right to be coming you know everyone shows up and claims asylum but a lot of people are just looking for a better life, which is understandable. But they don't get, basically, don't get sent back, um, even if it's determined. Okay, you're not fleeing a conflict. Your life's not in danger where you come from, where you come from. You're just where you come from is an economic basket case or something. It, it, that doesn't change the policy. It's like, oh, just let people in anyway. No, they, they don't get sent back on mass or anything. You're saying, oh, it's the EU, the beacon, etc. Where's the EU's um, responsibility to its own citizens? If we say, okay, well, everyone can, you know, like just everyone can come in. How is that sustainable? How, leaving aside the, the tensions that, that it can it can make between societies, leaving aside the potential for security threats that, that may come from a small number of individuals, whether that's knife crime, whether that's gang activity, whether that even terrorism. Leaving aside all of that, where does the money come from? I think with uh, I think that's a good question. I think it's something that the EU is going to struggle with going forward is to find a consensus on how are we going to fund any sort of project which we aim to try and integrate migrants through? And I think that's something that the EU is always going to struggle with going forward. And from a business perspective as well, the businesses that are affected by migration, such as ones on the islands of Lesbos, also they need to start thinking, well, how are they going to get funding to deal with these additional uh, issues such as infrastructure and stuff like that? And I think in the interest of time, I'm going to wrap it up there, just otherwise we could probably go on forever. I think this is an incredibly contentious issue that's got so many different points to it. I don't want to go on too far. So I'll summarise what we've already said. We spoke about the national level and the way that inter-ethnic conflicts from host countries where these uh, refugees are often coming from 
these these issues and these conflicts are being are coming with them and in some cases to countries in the eu and we're seeing types of crime between ethnic communities uh, that, that police in countries such as sweden and germany aren't actually were used to dealing with and it's added a new more complicated layer to policing and I think, um, we've also seen at the national level and a complete divide in discourse within within states as well as within the EU itself, but mostly within states as to uh, between regional governments as to how they deal with the crisis. So certain regions, as we spoke about, are more impacted by this than others, and as a result, there's a divide into opinions. So, for example, regions that are less affected take a much more laissez-faire approach. And then, secondly, we spoke about the international side of it and how Turkey has used refugees as a political bargaining tool when in discussion with the EU. And we spoke briefly about uh, about how this has impacted relationship between the relationship between the EU and Turkey itself. And finally, we didn't really come to a conclusion on this, which I didn't expect we would. To be fair, we sp- didn't solve the immigrant exactly. <laughs> okay, we yeah. we didn't come to a conclusion as to what the EU can actually do to solve this. However, we did identify, I think, quite a few of the issues that face the EU. And depending on who you ask, I think this uh, I think this is this issue won't go away anytime soon, regardless of what side of the coin you sit on. And I think the EU is. I think I think we both come to agree, agreement in some sorts, in some way, that the EU is, in one way or the other, not perfectly capable to carry this out. It's got, it's got limitations, but it's not necessarily impossible either. So, thanks, Alex. Thanks, Chris. And please don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe to our YouTube channel if you liked what you see today.